invite you to continue to uh, worship together uh, through the study of God's Word. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open to Luke uh, chapter 22. We're going to start in verse, uh, in verse 39. We have not had an uh, opportunity to meet. My name is Shane. I have the privilege of serving as the discipleship pastor here at IDC. And uh, we are just going to keep going through the book of Luke as uh, is our practice uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we have been in uh, a room together with Jesus and his disciples. The last several weeks, we've been looking at the, the, the time that Jesus has shared with his disciples, sharing this, uh, what is referred to as, as the Last Supper, and then he's given some instruction and some teaching with his disciples. And, and today, in, in our text, we, we change scenes. We, we get to uh, open things up a little bit and move from this, this one little room uh, to, to a mountain. He goes to a place uh, called the, the Mount of Olives, and the disciples uh, go with him there. You can see that at the beginning of our text in verse 39. Now Luke has already told us about this place. This is a place that Jesus has frequented before. It was a regular practice, uh, even as the text tells us, for him to go late at night or early in the morning and and pray there and have just a a time of sweet communion with the Lord. And his disciples would would sometimes go with him or would be with him. And so this was a a, a regular rhythm for him. Luke has even told us before that he's lodged there uh, before. This was one of their regular hangouts and haunts. But John also tells us uh, that this is a place that Judas would know where they would be. So the Mount of Olives is not just a, a uh, kind of a let's, let's retire from the, the, uh, the meal and let's go hang out uh, around a bunch of uh, olive trees. It was the scene that would be the kind of culmination, the fulfillment of Judas's plan. We've already seen that Judas has uh, been intent to betray Jesus, uh, but there was a problem, wasn't there? Uh, see, Jesus has had some enemies for, for quite some time. We've seen this as we've studied through the, the book of Luke. Uh, there have been scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and, and Jewish leaders and elders who have all been trying to, to trap Jesus, to, to corner him, uh, to get him in, in, in some pickle so that the crowds would turn against them, or maybe they can get him trapped so that the, the Roman government would, would be willing to arrest him and punish him in some way. And after failing time and time again, what they really really needed was to isolate Jesus. They needed some time when they could kind of pounce in the cover of darkness, if you will. And so when they found in Judas a betrayer, Judas would say, I know the spot. So this move to the Mount of Olives in some ways was normal. It was regular. It was a part of the regular kind of practice and rhythm. But at the same time, it was going to be kind of the, the pinnacle of the, the betrayer's action against Jesus. It was going to be the scene the, of the beginning of Jesus' apparent downfall. So this, this scene on the, the Mount of Olives really develops in, in two sections. If you were listening to the text or if you've read it before, you, we get the first half of this passage where Jesus gets to hang out to some degree with his disciples. He gets some kind of time with them first where he's, he's instructing them and he goes off a little bit and he prays by himself, but it's, it's just Jesus and his disciples. And then really the second half of our passage, the mob shows up. And so we're going to take this, this text this morning in those two sections where we get all of this is happening on the Mount of Olives, but we get the first interaction or the first kind of section where we get Jesus and his disciples and then we get the second section where we get the mob that he has to deal with. And as we look at both of these, the main idea that is going to kind of tie them all together is very simply this. 
in the midst of all of this turmoil, in the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of all of the suffering, as we'll see in just a second, Jesus and Jesus alone shows himself to be faithful. He is the faithful Savior that kind of just arises to the top in contrast to so many others in this passage. Everybody else kind of has a role in this text. Uh, It's almost like uh, when my kids are playing and sometimes I get roped into this and inevitably one of the children at one point starts to take charge and assign everybody a role. And it's like, you're going to be fluffy, you're going to be zha-zha, you're going to be lucky. And then I love it often because she'll look at me, usually the two-year-old, and be like, daddy, you're Batman. Uh, I'm like, yeah. Uh, uh, and so, uh, really, throughout the rest of the day, she'll just be like, you Batman daddy? I'm like, yeah, baby. Uh, and, and, and that's irrelevant to this passage. But uh, you get the idea. Everybody's got a role, and then it's like go time, and everybody gets to execute their role. Well, in this text, everybody's got a role, okay? The disciples have the role of the weak ones. Judas has the role of the betrayer. The mob has the role of the the accusers, the violent ones, the hateful ones. And Jesus has the role of the faithful one. He's going to be held in contrast to each of these groups. And and over and over again, as they they encounter different things, Jesus is going to be the faithful one, the one who, who shows himself faithful to God's purposes and his plans, while everybody else begins to kind of reveal themselves in their insufficiency. Jesus shows himself to be the faithful one. And so let's just take this text in two, two roles, or you know, two, two sections. The first, I want you to see that Jesus shows himself to be the faithful Savior in the face of, of suffering. He's the faithful Savior in the, the face of suffering. There's kind of a sandwich in verses 40 through 46. There's a, there's a bracket that happens in this text. There's the repetition of the phrase, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He gives the, the disciples this instruction two times in verse 40 and 46. He, he says, all right, we're going to go into the Mount of Olives. Here's your job. You need to pray that you might not enter into temptation. And then Jesus goes and he, he separates himself and he comes back and then he basically says, have you been praying that you might not enter into temptation? That's kind of the, the, the thing that Luke tells us to say, these things, they're going to go together. And, and, and as we look at that, first of all, one of the things we're going to see is the disciples' weakness and their inability to actually accomplish this task. Their failure in this very simple instruction But in the middle, we're going to see, highlighted, contrasted with their weakness and their failure, we're going to see Jesus' faithfulness to what he has been called to do. So let's, let's just kind of work through this text. With, when he gets there with the disciples in verse 40, he comes to the place and he say, says what I've been saying, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now given the fact that this happens right on the heels of Jesus predicting that Peter was going to, uh, to, was going to deny Jesus several times, and, and then right after this text, we jump again. Luke tells us that Now is the time for Peter to go ahead and deny Jesus. It's likely that there is in some ways a specific encouragement when he's saying, Peter, you need to pray that you might not enter into temptation. But there's also a more broad kind of prayer that needs to happen. Jesus has already told the disciples that Satan has asked that he might sift them like wheat. He's like, Satan has declared, I'm coming after you. 
And if you were with us in a previous week, what you know is that Jesus' response to that, Jesus' response to the request of Satan that he might sift the disciples like wheat. He's coming after them. He's trying to trip them up. He's trying to capture them. And Jesus' response, especially to Peter, was, I have prayed for you. And I think that's incredibly instructive for us. Jesus' own act of protection for his disciples in the face of the oncoming temptation was praying for them. And now it's as though Jesus is looking to the disciples and saying, the sifting is coming. It's here. It's arriving. What are you going to do? And he says, pray. Fall on your knees and pray that you might not enter into the temptation. What does that phrase mean, entering into temptation? I don't, think, I don't think the best way to read that is that he's saying, pray that you can avoid temptation, meaning that you don't experience temptation. Jesus is actually assuming temptation is going to come. He knows this is going to be a part of their experience in the coming days, in the coming weeks, in the coming years, but even in the coming hours. He knows these disciples are going to ex- face some kind of intense temptation, and they need to, they need to be ready for it. He, he, he is not telling them, pray that you can be spared of any temptation. He's saying, when the temptation comes, pray that you are able to not enter into it. I find this to be a great encouragement, and I, 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 hope, I hope you do as well. I think so many times people can feel that the experience of the temptation itself is the failure. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had yourself thinking, I ought not even be tempted by this? And you begin to become your own accuser. You become the one who is coming and and just uh, 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 shouting at yourself. You've already failed by the fact that this is something that you might even be tempted by. Jesus does not say, pray that you cannot be tempted by things. He says, pray that when the temptation comes, you might not enter into it. There's great encouragement for us here, Christian. You are going to be tempted in all manner of things that would lead you away to obedience to the Lord and total faithfulness to him. The temptations are coming. Satan desires to sift the disciples like uh, like we, but we ought not be naive and think that Satan's work, you know, he's just laid down his tools and said, I'm done. The evil one is still at work and sin is still at work in our hearts. Temptation is going to come, but Jesus here, I think, invites us likewise to say, pray that you do not enter into the temptation. When the temptation comes and it invites us to chase after the Lord, the battle is not over at that point. That is the point of the battle. That is the point when we then can throw ourselves on the mercy and the kindness of God and and hear and the power of God. Pray for help that you cannot fall into the temptation. It's It's an invitation to cry out to God and say, the temptation's here, it's right now. Saints, don't, don't, don't uh, kind of give up at that point. Don't, don't throw in the towel at that point. It's at that point you go to the Lord and say, the temptation's here. Lord, help me not to enter into it. Well, we then see Jesus withdrawing a little bit. In my house, the phrase that we get to use a lot is, can you give me some space? Um, and it's, uh, it's, you know, Daddy says, can you give me some space? Quite a lot. Um, uh, and then it's really fun when my kids tell each other, uh, you know, it sounds really, it, it sounds really refined, but it, there's, there's a little bit of a condescension to it. Can you give me some space, my two-year-old to my three-year-old? Uh, you know, uh, 
Jesus is here like, I need a little space, guys. Uh, you guys pray that, that you may not enter into temptation. I'm going to go about a stone's throw, get a little space. Uh, but he's not just trying to get away from the disciples, is he? He's there going, and he has to himself kneel down and pray, verse 41 tells us. Now, his prayer is a little bit different, isn't it? Jesus is not praying that he would not fall into temptation, although you could argue that there's, there's a little bit of something like that going on. Surely there was some version or some manner of temptation that he was facing, but that is not really the focal point of his prayer for himself. He really, from the bottom of his heart, begins to cry out and ask the Father to do really two things for him. One, it is to rescue him from the coming suffering. And then two, it is to accomplish his purposes through him. He prays that God would rescue him from the coming suffering. This is what he says, right? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If you are willing, God, please take this suffering away from me. And I just find this in, in just, uh, thinking about all the dynamics going on here. This is God the Son talking to God the Father. They have a perfectly aligned purposes and wills. And yet here is the God-man, the Son of God, God made flesh, saying, I know that suffering is coming and I don't want it. And I think that is good news for those of us who are living in a fallen and broken world. Because I think sometimes we can imagine that the super spiritual answer to our suffering and our trials is to be like, don't care, bring it on. I can handle it. As though suffering is not suffering. As though brokenness is not brokenness. As, no hurt is, as though hurt is not hurt. And what Jesus does here is he models what it looks like to say the brokenness in this world and the suffering in this world is real suffering and it is something that God is going to undo and he's going to make all things right. But in the meantime, when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, when we go through trials and tribulations, it's okay to cry out to the Lord and say, I don't like this. And if it's all the same to you, can it not happen? Can, can I just... Not, you don't have to be Superman. You don't have to be the Savior. The Savior is saying, can this not happen? The Lord hears. He invites us to bring those pleas, those earnest pleas. Who are you kidding? Suffering's no big deal. You're not kidding anybody. Suffering's the worst. That's, what, that's why they call it suffering. But he, but he says, he says if, if, it, if you're willing, let this, let this friend... Brother, sister, saint, if you are going through some trial and tribulation, you do not have to be superhuman or super spiritual. You can cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, can you make this stop? And you can even look forward to the day and say, one day this will stop. Can you bring some of that into the future? Can you make some of that happen right now? Because this is not fun. I don't like it. It hurts. It's hard. And I want it to be over. But that's not where he stops, is it? He says, rescue me from this, this suffering. I, I, don't, I don't want it. But instead, he goes, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, in that one sentence, it seems like 
uh, Jesus might be introducing some idea of conflict between him and the Father. I, I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think what he's saying here is that the God the Son and God the Father, their wills are not perfectly aligned. And he's saying, well, one of us has to win and one of us has to lose. And so I guess I'll let you win uh, because you're the Father and I'm the Son. That's not what's going on. What we are seeing here is the true suffering of the God-man. This is not fake suffering. This is not pretend suffering. It's not just artificial suffering. It is real suffering of a real human being and it hurts uh, in a second he's going to call it agony he is being agonized here by the suffering that is is coming and what he is experienced he and the father are not at odds but what he is doing is he's recognizing this is a real trial jesus when 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 uh, the scriptures tell us that he is able to sympathize in our weaknesses That is not just conceptually he is able to sympathize. He really understands, friend, your sufferings. He really understands your hurts. And he is not not sitting here saying that, that he and the Father are competing. What he's doing is he's giving voice to the reality that this is truly excruciating. Now, I, I want to look at the, the progression, the if you are willing, remove this cup, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And I, I want to just make a quick kind of pastoral application for us, okay? I think sometimes we imagine that if um, we are truly spiritual beings, that we will only want one thing at a time, and that one thing will be perfect, it will be what, what God wants, Okay? We will always want to do the right and holy, perfect thing, okay? And so, when we find ourselves not wanting that thing, we feel like frauds. If we know something, some, some act of obedience that we're supposed to do. Uh, uh, husbands, you know you're supposed to love your wives like Christ loved the church. You know there's some act of service that you could do for your wife, but you don't want to. And so you say, well, I could, but at that point, I'd just be doing it. would be this legalism. It would be this duty. It wouldn't really be out of love. And so I ought not to do it because then it would be kind of fraudulent, right? Because I don't want to. And if we stop there, that kind of makes, makes sense. In the world. I, I want you to see here, Jesus does not want to go through suffering. And yet, what he shows us is there is a greater want that supersedes the lesser want and then controls his actions moving forward. He is honest about the fact that he does not want to go through suffering, but he wants something even more than not going through suffering. What does he want? He wants the Father's purposes and wills to be accomplished. Okay? So, husbands, when you don't want to serve your wife, okay, what you, you don't have to be, you don't have to lie about that, okay? Again, you're not fooling anybody. What you can do is say, even though I don't want this in a real way, what I want more than that want is to both love my wife and please the Lord in that moment. And so I find a way to act in obedience, even though I truly don't want to. And you could, we can make all kinds of uh, implications, you know, all kinds of applications here. But if we're honest about it and say, man, I don't really want to do that, well, I guess I probably shouldn't because then it would be fake. No, we can actually want multiple things at one time, and there are wants, and then there are greater wants. And he's inviting us here to say there is a greater want even than avoiding suffering. There's a greater want even than having pleasure or comfort or this amazing experience, or whatever you're, you're chasing after. There is a greater want than that, and that is to please the Lord and to walk in his ways and accomplish his purposes. And when we follow that want, that is not fraudulent, that is faithfulness. 
Jesus is showing us the path of faithfulness. Nevertheless, not, not what I'm wanting in this moment. I want something more than I'm wanting in this moment. I want your will to be done. And so let whatever you're doing, whatever your purposes are, guide me, control me, take me through this situation. Now, we also need to to dig in a little bit more to Jesus' initial prayer. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? This cup. You and I might, if we're just kind of talking casually, say, uh, I don't really want this lot in life. I drew the short straw. I don't really want to play this role, you might say. But he doesn't doesn't really say that. He says, remove this cup from me. And when he says that, he's actually drawing on a very, very powerful Old Testament image. We're not going to go there right now, but you can look at Isaiah chapter 51 and then Jeremiah chapter 25. I would encourage you to go back and read these passages because there you get the the cup that he is kind of, he's, he's echoing this image of the cup. And what you find in those passages is that, that God was in this cup pouring out his just and perfect judgment against sinners and his enemies. The cup represented the wrath of God against evil. The cup represented God's just judgment against sin. So when Jesus is saying, let this cup pass from me, he's not just saying, I don't want to go to the cross, that's going to hurt. He's saying, I know that what is about to happen to me is the wrath of God is going to be poured out on me. In asking, may this cup pass from me. He is, he is opening, peeling back the curtain and showing us this is the very heart of the gospel right here. What's happening here in this agony, in this suffering, is not just any suffering. It is the suffering that comes when God pours out his perfect judgment against this Savior. This is the message of the gospel. And if you're here, if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to point you to those two words, the cup. And if you look at that and consider it, this is the message of the gospel, is that God in his perfect judgment must punish sinners. He must execute perfect judgment against sin and rebellion. So what he does is he sends his son to live a perfect life, and then he takes the cup of his wrath and his judgment against sin, and instead of pouring it out on you, and instead of pouring it out on me, he pours it on Jesus. He says, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take care of this punishment. He is righteous and holy. He has to judge sin. But instead of judging you for your sin, he judges his son. He's going to pour it out on Christ. The images, and when you go to Jeremiah uh, chapter 25, they're, they're, they're almost quite violent. It's this idea, I'm going to make you drink the cup. It's like God is like, you are going to drink the cup. Well, right now he turns that to his son. He says, you're going to drink the cup. You're going to drink the cup of sin, of, of, of my wrath against sin, so that sinners can be forgiven. Now, notice what happens next in verse 43 and 44. It's, there appeared to him uh, a, an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. What we can see here is that the cup that he asked to be removed, it's not removed. The suffering that he did not want to experience, he does begin to experience it. Even here, he talks about being in agony. He's hurting, and his prayers are are earnest. They're weighty. They're so much so that, that his sweat is like drops of blood. And yet God, 
as he is allowing Jesus to go through this suffering, as he is allowing, he's not answering the question, uh, uh, the, the plea, Lord, don't make me go through this suffering. The Lord does not say, okay. He says, no, you're gonna go through it. But the Lord is not distant and aloof. Instead, he sends help. Isn't that amazing? He's like, you're gonna go through this. You're gonna experience this suffering. You're going to have to walk. Because he also prayed, not my will, but yours be done. The Lord looks at him and says, okay, my will is going to be done. But the Lord sends him help in the form of these angels. I don't know what the process or the mechanics of this uh, are, but it seems that the angels, they appear from heaven and they strengthen him. I appreciate uh, Tony and the, the uh, kind of welcome time talking about uh, the value of us sending people to just go visit some of our missionaries. Just their presence gets to be uh, a reminder, hey, you are loved, you are cared for, you are not forgotten, you are doing great work, keep going. And, and, and hopefully the effect is there's a strengthening that happens. Well, here they get that. The presence of these angels strengthens Jesus. He is, he is uh, uh, steeled up for the, per- for the purpose uh, uh, that God has for him in the work that is going to come. Well, in verse 45, he returns to the disciples, and he doesn't find them as these examples of faithfulness that he has just shown us. Right again, I remember I said there's the brackets on, the, on either end, there's the disciples, and in the middle, there's the focal point, Jesus' faithfulness as the Savior. Well, we're on the other end of that, and here we find the disciples, and they are the contrast. He is the one who is willing to say, even at great personal cost, not my will, but yours be done. They are the ones who had one simple task, pray that you might not enter into temptation. And what does he find? He finds them sleeping. Now, the text does tell us that they are sleeping from sorrow. It might mean that they are exhausted from just the heaviness, the weightiness. Have you ever had gone through a season in life where it was just like blow after blow after blow? Maybe hard day at work, hard day at home with family, some extended family is sick. I don't know, just thing after thing after thing hits, and you get to the end, and you're just like, I just need a nap, All right? Some of you moms are shaking your heads, right? You know what that's like, okay? Uh, we just, I'm, I'm just so overcome by the weightiness of all of this. I just, I just, it's almost like the, the, the Luke is telling us the, the disciples are beginning to catch on here. They're beginning to understand that something's about to go down. And as they contemplate the fact that Jesus has been telling them, hey, he's going to die, he's going to suffer, uh, all this is going to come to pass. And they're starting to wonder, oh, is this, is that is that what's happening right now? And as they contemplate that, the heaviness of it drives them. And just say, they just say, we, we, need to, we need to take a nap. Well, their failure serves at least two purposes. On the one hand, it shows us, the, it highlights for us, in the contrast to their weakness, their inability to be faithful in this very simple task, it shows us the faithfulness of Jesus in the midst of his suffering. And on the other hand, it highlights the extent of his suffering. You know, they're just beginning to get it. You know, think about it, they're just beginning to say, oh, maybe something's going on here. And they're like, I can't handle it, I need to sleep. Jesus has known this whole time. He's lived his whole life driving to this moment. And he gets to that point and he's able to say, through all of this, I don't want to experience it, but not my will, yours be done. Jesus is the faithful Savior, even through the suffering that he's already experiencing and he knows is going to come. Now, in the next uh, kind of half of our text this morning, we see Jesus faithful in the face of betrayal. Eventually, their time runs out together and the mob shows up. 
Judas arrives uh, bringing a crowd together. And Luke tells us in verse 52 that this crowd is made up of no less than the, the chief priests and the temple officers and the elders. These are Jewish leaders who have been trying to trap Jesus, trying to discredit him, trying to arrest him for some time. And finally, they have found their opportunity. And so verse 47 tells us that, that Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Luke wants to highlight the fact that this is not just somebody knew where they would be, but this is one of Jesus' close confidants. It was, it was an intimate friend. It was one of the inner circle who was the very agent of leading the crowd to Jesus that would execute his punishment and eventually his crucifixion on them. Luke wants us to see and feel the weight of betrayal that is happening in this text. And so he says, he, being Judas, drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Why, why a kiss? Well, on the one hand, they just needed like a signal. It was dark. You got to remember, there's no like electricity or anything. It's going to be dark on this mountain. People, everybody looks the same in the dark. Uh, they needed somebody who knew who could take them to the precise person. And so there was, uh, uh, Matthew and Mark both tell us that there was like, hey, the guy that you're looking for, this is Judas talking to the, the officers, the guy you're looking for, he's gonna be the guy I kiss. You know, it's just like, you know, they had some baseball signal or something like that. But for them, it was, I'm gonna kiss this guy. Wouldn't have been what I chose, but you know, uh, they, they can do their thing. No, it wouldn't have been what I chose for multiple reasons, but for him, it actually was precisely, like it, the, the kiss wasn't just, I've got all these options, let me go with kiss. The kiss meant something. It was itself a slap in the face. You, you don't turn this into like, well, in that culture, kisses don't mean the same. No, it was still a kiss. That's exactly why Jesus says, you're going to betray me with a kiss? This was an expression of intimacy, of love, of respect, of affection and devotion. Judas is walking up to him and he's reminding him, I have been playing a part I have been doing a bit this whole time of showing you affection and devotion and that I'm a follower and all these kind of things. And yet here, with that very act of affection, he betrays him into his, the, the enemy's hands. It was meant to sting. It was meant to be hurtful. Judas was not just pointing him out. He was putting the, the, the knife in his back and then twisting it a little bit. Well, what would you expect Jesus to do in response? What would you do in response, I wonder? Knowing that he betrays him with a kiss, a slap in the face. Well, the disciples give us a little bit of a picture of what most of us would do, right? They're like, uh, Verse 49, and when those who are around him saw what would follow, great, the disciples are catching on. Now, this is bad, okay? Uh, things are going south. They say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And Luke doesn't tell us that he gives any kind of answer. We can see in a second, obviously, Jesus doesn't want them to strike with the sword. And yet, one of them strikes the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John tells us that the one who struck is probably Peter, because of course it had to be Peter. <laughs> uh, maybe it would have been you. Maybe you, maybe you would have been uh, the, the, guy who, the, the guy who jumps in there. Uh, I, I don't know. 
some, some of you guys have been like, yeah, that would have definitely been me. If I had a sword, I would have gone for it right then. You remember wh- why they have the sword? Uh, Jesus had told him last week, uh, or, sorry, in our passage last week, but just in, you know, an hour before, they're in the upper room, and, and uh, Jesus had said, be prepared for conflict. Tony walked us through this. Be prepared for conflict. Things are going to get hard. People are going to come against you, and so he, he gives this metaphor. You need to be prepared with swords. Be prepared for conflict, and then the disciples are like, we got swords? And Jesus is like, it's almost like you can just see him rubbing his temples, you know, and so in the text, it says, it is enough, but it'd almost be like us just saying, you know what, never mind. Like, like, Forget I said anything, okay? He wasn't being like, great, grab the swords. He was just like, forget it. And they're like, we'll bring the swords. You know, like, uh, got it. And they wink, you know, yeah. Uh, So now this conflict comes and they're like, sword time? And Jesus just, I I don't know, I just imagine him being like, seriously? Uh, And they're like, yeah. And so they slice off the ear. I don't know why, I don't know if that means they're a bad shot or if that was on the way to something more aggressive. I don't know, but th- I'm sure it wouldn't feel good to have your ear, but it doesn't seem like the strategically best blow to, to, to make there at that, that point. But either way, Jesus jumps in, and he says, no, 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 this is not the way. Mandalorian style. Jesus, Jesus jumps in in the face of this betrayal. Remember the sting. Feel the weight of what Jesus must be feeling. He knows the suffering is coming. He knows the cup of God's wrath is being poured out on him. And here one of his closest followers shows up and doesn't just say, that's the guy. He comes with this mocking act of devotion and says, this is the guy that you're going for. The disciples, from our perspective, we need to to, to grant them a little charity. They, They had the right idea. This was offensive. It was hurtful. It was wretched. And yet, what do we see in Jesus held up against the disciples in their fleshly response, held up against Judas in his betrayal. Jesus jumps in and he says, stop this, we're not doing this. And then he actually heals his enemy. He heals the servant. He said, this is not the way that things are going to get done. It's almost as though this is the very first act of obedience consistent with the prayer he just prayed, not my will but yours be done. He's just said, even though my flesh, not my flesh, but my desires are going to take me this way, I know ultimately what I want to do is to please the Lord. And here he is immediately confronted with this opportunity. One of his enemies gets his ear uh, uh, cut off, and he says, what is the Lord's will in that moment? And he's been teaching his followers that they are to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. Well, here is a man whose ear is cut off, and, and he, in an act of love and compassion and care, bends down and he heals this man. And then he turns to the mob. In verse 52, Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus points to their cowardice and their shame these leaders who've come out against him, treating him like he's some common criminal, criminal when he knows he has done nothing to deserve this. He has not been in hiding. He says, I've been in broad data. I've been open and honest about everything about who I am, and you never came against me. But instead, what you've done is you've chosen this hour. We can read this, this hour as like, this is your time. This is your moment right here. But he's also kind of pointing to the fact that it's late. You guys are acting consistent with this time. 
the night being this, this uh, kind of metaphor of sorts for darkness and evil and wretchedness. What's happening here, he says, it is appropriate that you're coming out in darkness. This is your time. I've been operating in the light. You guys are operating in darkness. And so he says, this is, this is appropriate. This is consistent with who you are. This is consistent with your plan. And that's exactly right, isn't it? From their perspective, this was the culmination of the plan. Everything in their minds was going perfectly well. We gotta get the betrayer. He's gonna lead us to him in an isolated context. We're gonna find out who he is. We're gonna take him. We're gonna crucify him, all in the cover of darkness. Everything was going perfectly. And I just wanna really draw it to a close as we consider Jesus' faithfulness in the midst of this betrayal. I, w- I want to uh, just read uh, the, the comments by, by one writer on this. He says, Luke has been revealing throughout his gospel and even recently in the recent chapters, he has been revealing Satan's plan, Satan's plan of destruction, even as he reveals God's plan of salvation. And it has become apparent that they are both driving towards the same object. Jesus' enemies are bending all of their efforts and their ingenuity to bring him to the cross, and yet that is the very cup which the Father has given him to drink. You see what's happening here in this, their hour of darkness, their hour, the, the, the power of darkness at play, the culmination of Satan's plan. Everything is going perfectly, and yet... Jesus wants us to see, Luke wants us to see as he is writing him, writing this, that God, as he is accomplishing his will and purposes, are totally in control. There is no conflict here. In fact, God in his ultimate sovereignty, his providence, he is using, he is allowing the power of darkness to kind of have its way while he uses that to be the agent of actually pouring out his own wrath to accomplish his purposes in sending the Son to die for the sins of the world. Even as they drag him away, even as they arrest him, even as the knife is stuck in and twisted a little bit, God is still in total control. The Lord Jesus is totally submitted to the Father's will. And as Jesus' suffering begins, so also does Jesus' triumph begin. His triumph over sin, death, and the devil are not put on pause at the Mount of Olives. At the Mount of Olives, Jesus is still the faithful Savior. And in the face of his betrayer, he says, you've got your time, but not what I will. And frankly, not what you will, but what God wills is going to be done. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that the, the cup of God's wrath was, would be poured out on him. The plan would not be thwarted. Because Jesus, in the face of weakness, in the face of betrayal, in the face of the mob, in the face of Satan's plan, perfectly executed, Jesus remained faithful. And for that, we can be ever grateful. It should stir in our hearts just exceeding devotion. We look at this passage, don't imagine you play any other role, maybe perhaps the disciples, which means you kind of like fell asleep on the job. But the reality is for most of us, we play a part similar to Judas's, or maybe the mobs. And yet Jesus looks at them, love and compassion, and says, 
I'm submitted to the Father's will. I'm giving myself totally over to his purposes for your sake and for mine. Brothers and sisters, we have a great Savior. We have a faithful Savior in the Lord Jesus. He does not look at their, uh, their, their uh, betrayal and their hatred and say, you know what? They're using these tools. We've got to use, use the tools of the world if, we're gonna, if they're going to use the tools of the world. He, doesn't do it. he remains totally faithful to the Lord's plan every step along the way. And he says, you're having your time, but the Lord's will will be accomplished. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for sending Christ, the faithful Savior, who was able to do what we could not, able to stay awake, able to submit uh, the desire to avoid suffering, hardship, trial, able to submit that to your perfect will. God, and we pray that even as we gaze on Christ today, you would, you would make us thankful for the rescue that we have in him, and you would form us into his image for your namesake and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.